hire people who are better than you at every uh, aspect of your organization and give them the tools to do their job. Hold them accountable, but also give them the freedom to, uh, to make mistakes and to, to push some boundaries in terms of, of what's possible. Welcome to the Sports Business Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Berger. You can find the Sports Business Radio Podcast 15 years over 600 episodes featuring conversations with the biggest names in sports like David Stern, Pete Carroll, Chris Abbott, Jeannie Buss, Michael Vick, Andre Iguodala, Mark Cuban, Tom Rinaldi, Charles Barkley, Jack Nicholas, Lindsey Vaughn, Eric Spolstra, Aaron Rodgers, and Steve Nash on iTunes or at sportsbusinessradio.com. Subscribe, rate, and review the Sports Business Radio podcast on iTunes, and everyone who posts a review on iTunes will be eligible to be selected to join us in our studio audience at one of our Sports Business Radio roadshows presented by Boingo. And we're also on Spotify now, so you can find us there. Follow us in between podcasts on Twitter at SB Radio. We've been named a top 50 follow by Forbes.com for three consecutive years, and on Instagram at Sports Business Radio. Blinder is the way high-performance teams connect their talent with the media and fans. It lets communications managers provide unprecedented access to their athletes, entertainers, and executives while respecting everyone's privacy and time. Blinder makes phone calls magic. Request a demo today at blinderhq.com backslash sbradio. Joining us now on the Blinder guest line is Rick Welts, the president and COO of the NBA's Golden State Warriors. You can follow him on Twitter at Rick Welts. Rick has been overseeing business operations for the Warriors since 2011. He's worked in the NBA for close to 40 years, including stints with the league office, the Seattle Supersonics, Phoenix Suns, and now the Warriors. Rick was inducted into the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame in 2018, and he just signed a multi-year extension with the Warriors. Rick, thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio. How are you? I'm really happy to have you on this week. Yeah, good, Brian. Good to be with you. So before we dig into the details of the new Chase Center, I want to talk about your Hall of Fame career. And it all started in Seattle. You grew up in Seattle, and I understand you were a ball boy with the Seattle Supersonics. At what point did you fall in love with the NBA? Because you've been working in the NBA for forty years now. I, uh, I, you know, Seattle only had one professional sports team when I was uh, a young teenager, uh, and that was the Sonics. I was there before the Seahawks or the Mariners or anyone else. And uh, my dad and I used to uh, go to Sonics games, and I fell in love not only with the game, but for me, I think it was more seeing what the team represented uh, to Seattle, a, a city that had never had a major league team before. And you know, it, it, I was just kind of fascinated by the by the relationship between the team uh, and the city itself. And I think really realized what a what a civic asset our sports teams are, and that uh, they can do things well beyond entertaining and and really are an important part of the psyche of uh, of any city. So I, th- I think, you know, it was really in my mid-teen years when I was going to the Sonics games at the Seattle Center Coliseum that that happened. And then you went on and worked for the team. You were there in 78 and 79 when they had back-to-back NBA Finals appearances. They won in 79. What was that like? Now your your love of this team, you're, you're winning a championship. 
amazing again to see just how completely involved the entire city was in in the run that the Sonics had those two years. You know, we had uh, signs and seemed like every window in town, and uh, you know, a championship parade that I'm sure pales by comparison to what uh, what the the Warriors had here in uh, in Oakland for three times. But it's it it really was something that brought the whole city together, and it was the most important thing that ever happened, civic event that had ever happened in Seattle. So that uh, you know that kind of probably cemented my uh, career and love for the game. We share two very dear friends, former NBA Commissioner David Stern, and I know you worked with our mutual friend Jay Perry when she was at the Phoenix Mercury. Jay has forbid me from allowing you to share any stories about her during this conversation, but David has not. So give me your best David Stern story, because I'm sure there's so many, and I'm sure some are clean and some aren't, but give me your best David Stern story, because you worked in the league office for, I believe, 17 years. Yeah, I I was one of the first people that he hired. It was before he was commissioner. He was uh, had been put in charge of building a business organization at the NBA, uh, and we didn't have one. We literally scheduled games and, and assigned referees and settled disputes between teams. And you know, I was the first person uh, hired to go out and actually talk to corporations about potentially investing marketing dollars in the NBA. Sounds crazy to me, yeah. but that was. That was back in 1982, and I, you know, I have really fond memories of those first few years, uh, even the time before David was commissioner, because he has—he's uh, different. He's just the most unique person I've ever been around, a friend and a mentor. And you know, I think uh, rather than one story, of which there are many, I, I think just the way he operated, he. He was able to craft a completely unique relationship with everyone uh, in the organization. He took the time to get to know you. He, unfortunately, knew emotionally how to push your buttons, uh, and he handled that differently with every person. And, you know, you would have, he's, as you know, occasionally a little bit volatile. Um, and if he, you know, you'd been the subject of that one day, as I was like everybody else, uh, you kind of go home hanging your head. And this was... This was at a time when everyone had a home telephone. Remember the dark ages? <laughs> um, and inevitably, about 10 o'clock at night, your home phone would ring, and David would be on the other line. And by the time you got through talking to him 15 or 20 minutes later, you were so charged up to go in and, and go through doors or walls or anything else to make the NBA's business better the next day. It was you know, something that happened over and over and over again, but he had a unique way of, you know, letting you have it at one point in the day, and then by uh, by by sundown, he would have you reeled back in and, and ready to, you know, go do your best for the NBA the next day. Just a completely unique personality. Yeah, I love David, and I've said many times on the show, I think he's the best commissioner in the history of sports, and he was the perfect commissioner for the time that the NBA needed someone with his personality and and characteristics. I love what Adam does now, but I think it's a different time for the league, and I think Adam fits this time well. Would you agree with that assessment? I do, I do, and you have to remember it was it was a bit of an upset. Um, this was a 42 year old lawyer that no one outside of the immediate NBA world had ever heard of when the owners elected him commissioner. And in the past, 
uh, you know, he replaced Larry O'Brien, who was in his job not because of what he'd ever done for basketball, but because of his political stature and his ability to help the, the NBA and the ABA merge without Congress uh, deciding that was something they should pay attention to. So Stern could not have been uh, further from uh, at the other end of the spectrum from Larry O'Brien. I mean, he was a lawyer. Um, He'd gotten to know the owners because of his work in the league office, and, and they picked an unknown, which at the time for the NBA, when it was looking to gain some momentum or gain some visibility in the sports world, was a pretty risky thing to do because it, it was a you know it was not a news story. It was some lawyer that no one had ever heard of, but for the next 30 years, uh, he proved that that uh, election to commissioner was a pretty good choice. Well, and people forget, you know this, because you were there, but at the beginning, when he came on board and, and you were there shortly before, NBA games, the finals were on tape delay. There were, you know, it was hard to find sponsors. It wasn't the NBA that we know today. So to see how far it's come from back then, it, it's really phenomenal. Yeah, it's hard to explain to people. Um I got to New York in 1982, and I'd come from a market where, as we discussed, where the NBA was the biggest thing imaginable. We'd won championships. Everybody was, you know, thought the NBA was the, the greatest thing in the world. What a shock to come to New York City and try to get appointments with companies or agencies who wanted nothing to do with the NBA. Hmm. It was, at that time, I would I would say it was baseball king. You know, the NFL a close second. Uh and college sports probably third, and I don't I don't know where the NHL would have been uh, compared to the NBA then in terms of uh, probably had more respect because the NBA was viewed as a mismanaged league. It was you know famous Sports Illustrated cover that uh, uh, talked had a deflated NBA basketball on it, really bemoaning uh, the future of the NBA and, and questioning whether it was a league that would survive when. One of their basic tenets was, you know, this is a league with three quarters of the athletes African American. Would America ever embrace the sports league? And to look back at that now is uh, is really uh, a good point in time to reference to see what can be accomplished. Uh, you know, if you present your sport in the better way. From everyone I've spoken with about you, they've told me two things. Number one. You're a visionary. And number two, you're fantastic to work for or with. One of the things that I know you're credited with is the creation of NBA All-Star Weekend back in 1984. This, again, is something people forget. It was just a one-day event. It was the game. It wasn't what we know now with the three-point contest and the dunk contest and all of the other uh, events around All-Star Weekend. Where do you get this vision from? Because not everyone has the ability to kind of see how to put these things into place. Well, that one was timing and a, and a sense of survival. Uh, you know, I'd been at the NBA for a year and a half, and I, I hadn't exactly uh, been successful in bringing a lot of corporations to the NBA. And I was home uh, one night and saw... Uh, Cracker Jack Old Timers baseball game on television, and some old guy got up uh, and started and hit a home run over the left field fence that had a Cracker Jack logo on it, and a few things clicked. So t the timing part of it was that Stern uh, had been elected commissioner but was going to become commissioner the day after the All-Star game in Denver in 1984. 
Uh, and one of the things that he had said is he wanted to get back into, uh, but wanted to re-embrace the history of the NBA. Felt it had this amazing history that we had never, never recorded, never celebrated, and that when he became commissioner, uh, that was going to change. Uh, and then we were going to Denver, and Carl Shearer, uh, the president of the Nuggets, came to New York, and we went to the Waldorf Astoria Hotel and had a cup of coffee, and Carl was very proud of the ABA heritage of the Nuggets. And uh, in that conversation, he said, why don't, we, why don't we do a slam dunk contest that would celebrate the famous 1976 ABA slam dunk contest? We'd do it at halftime of the All-Star Game. It'd be a great tribute to our ABA heritage. So with that idea and the old-timers idea, uh, you know, I went to David Stern and just said, look, what if we created a second day? Um, it would be a platform to showcase the history of our sport, which is something that you've already put at the top of your list, and then we could add a slam dunk contest that would uh, that would celebrate the present and future of the NBA, and, and I think I think we could do it in a separate day and sell a separate ticket. And he liked the idea, but we went to see Larry O'Brien. Remember, the flip side of David taking over was it was Larry O'Brien's last uh, weekend in office. And uh, I got a absolute, you got to be crazy from the commissioner. So that was the end of the idea. And then I don't know what happened in the ensuing week, but David uh, walked into my office a week later and said, hey, the commissioner says you can do it. Uh, he just says, you, number one, you can't embarrass him on his last weekend in office, and it can't cost the NBA a nickel. You've got to pay for the whole thing. So with that ringing endorsement, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we set out to create the first. We called it All-Star Saturday in Denver, and, you know, the rest is history. It's it, uh, better to be lucky than good sometimes, but the timing was perfect. It, it showcased the NBA in a way that had never been showcased before, and Stern becomes commissioner the next day and kind of inherits this momentum and all of a sudden this new attention that the NBA is getting and and obviously uh, he knew what to do with it from there. So last year you were inducted into the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame. You actually went in with Steve Nash, who I know you know from your, your Phoenix days. Again, you've done so much in basketball. Your career is still going on strong, but what did it mean to you to stand up there on that stage and, and receive that honor? Uh, incredible. You know, you can dream about being a part of a of a championship team or the things that we all aspire to do in sports. But uh, you know, no one ever uh, in my kind of job dreams that you could be recognized that way. So it was it was just amazing, and uh, you know, probably the the greatest honor for me that I'll I'll receive in my pre- professional career because it was so unexpected. And it wasn't just Steve Nash. Uh, also, Grant Hill from uh, That's true. from my Phoenix teams and Jason Kidd, and you know the list went on and on. It's like, what the hell am I doing with this group? But it was uh, you know an unforgettable weekend and something I'll I'll cherish forever. You're listening to Sports Business Radio with our guest Rick Welts, the president and COO of the Golden State Warriors. We'll be right back after this. When it comes to stadiums and arenas, every sports pro knows wireless wins. And when it comes to the best wireless technology for your venue, look no further than Boingo Wireless. Boingo is the largest operator of indoor wireless networks in the U.S., providing state-of-the-art Wi-Fi and cellular services that power amazing fan experiences. And Boingo makes keeping your stadium connected easy today and in the future. Thinking about 5G? 
Boingo's expert team helps you carry the ball through a complex technology landscape to deliver wireless solutions that will delight fans and deepen loyalty season after season. Here's another kicker. Boingo is simply the best connected experience for your business. With Boingo, stadiums and arenas enjoy unique operating efficiencies, revenue opportunities, and digital insights into their fan base. That's a win-win. Boingo works with major league sports venues like Soldier Field, Vivint Smart Home Arena, State Farm Arena, and University Stadiums like University of Louisville and K-State. Our thanks to Boingo for their continued support of Sports Business Radio. We're excited to showcase how technology is changing the business of sports. If you would like more information on Boingo Wireless, visit boingo.com or email sports at boingo.com. Now, back to Sports Business Radio with our guest, Rick Welts. Well, I say this to people all the time, and, and, you know, I'll say it since you're here. I have followed your career for a long time, and people always talk about the success of the Golden State Warriors on the court, and it's well-deserved. But what people don't talk about as much, at least in the broad sense, is the success on the business side of the Warriors. And, you know, you have had a, a big hand in that, and I think that honor was well-deserved. Rick, it's funny, I grew up in Phoenix, so I have followed the Suns for a long time. I don't live there anymore, but uh, probably more in tune with the Suns organization than the average person. And at one point in the halls of the offices with the Phoenix Suns, you've got you, Steve Kerr, Mike D'Antoni, Alvin Gentry, Steve Nash, Dan Marley, Jay Perry, like you said, Grant Hill, Jason Kidd. I mean, what a list of talent inside those walls. It was uh, it was a really special time. You know, the Suns have a, a, a really unique place in Phoenix history. They were the first professional team right. in Phoenix and uh, have built not only a reputation for being successful, even though never won a championship, but also as maybe the the, the biggest advocates of what teams can mean to their community. Jerry Colangelo uh, built the culture of the Suns around community engagement and uh, taught the rest of the NBA, maybe the rest of sports, why that was important and, you know, how, how why it should be a part of what you are as a franchise. So, you know, it was an honor to get to work for Phoenix. Um, and we, we actually, it's kind of a joke here with uh, Steve Kerr, uh, one of our assistant GMs is Nick Uren. I'm here, and Alvin was here for a while. We, we called it Phoenix North. Uh, <laughs> Steve, Nash, Steve Nash is a, a player consultant for us. So, like, we, we joke about it all the time. And I, you know, the, the basketball that the Warriors uh, have played to win three championships uh, is just the evolution of that Mike D'Antoni system right. that we had in, in Phoenix that really, that really was the, the radical change in terms of the way the game was played. And uh, the, those teams brought people to the game that had never paid attention to it before because of the pace, because of the, you know, just, just the excitement three-point shot uh, created and you know we we play a little better defense here in Golden State than we played in in Phoenix which might be why we got those championships but uh, it really is an evolution from those Phoenix days to to what we are today it's I think you can draw a straight line from one to the other so 2011 you leave Phoenix and you come to Golden State and at the time Golden State wasn't the organization that it is now, and there were new owners that were coming in, but it was a little bit of a risk for you, because you probably could have stayed in Phoenix forever and worked there and, and been perfectly happy, 
but you took on this new challenge. What was it about the challenge that attracted you to leave Phoenix to go to Golden State in 2011? Well, it's the perfect, for me personally, it's the, it's the type of opportunity I've always been attracted to. So uh, the Sonics were much of a team when I got there. Uh, the NBA, frankly, was a broken league when I got there. The Suns, with their historic success, had fallen on uh, both hard competitive times and economic times. I mean, we we spent uh, a lot of uh, Monday mornings trying to figure out how we're going to meet payroll. That wow. Point, which sounds crazy today. Um, but each of them had had all the elements for success. Uh, that That is why what attracted me there. And Golden State you know, is that plus, because uh, while the team uh, and business organization had not had success over two decades, really, uh, everybody in the NBA looked at, at the Warriors and said, holy cow, look at look at the market they're playing in, look at the fan support they've had, even though their teams uh, have made the playoffs once out of 16 years, uh, and, you know, a place to live. And so it had all the ingredients, um, and when Joe Lakeland and Peter Guber bought the team, I remember watching from Phoenix, seeing that their first hire was Jerry West. I thought, well, okay, these guys may be serious about uh, trying to do things differently than they've done. And when I got introduced to them, uh, we had one meeting. Uh, we we spent an afternoon at Joe Lacob's house, and, and uh, Peter Goober and Joe Lacob at the end of our dinner that night just said, job's yours if you want it. And... I wanted it because it does it, it it what's happened really is the manifestation of all those those factors that were that were already here but hadn't been organized in a way that uh, had had created much success so so you know I like I like those kind of opportunities I like opportunities where it may not be obvious that the the lack of success that is happening right now uh, is just a matter of management. It's not a matter of not being able to have a successful organization. Well, you've certainly done an amazing job. What would you say? You talked earlier about uh, David Stern's management style. What's your management style? I would say uh, hire people who are better than you at every uh, aspect of your organization and give them the tools to do their job. Hold them accountable. Uh, but also give them the freedom to uh, to make mistakes uh, and to to push some boundaries in terms of of what's possible. And you know, I think one thing I learned from David, I try to impart too, is he was the most is the most voracious reader I've ever been around. And and he would read things that had nothing to do with sports. He would. I'd come into his office and he would hand me a stack of uh, newspaper or magazine uh, clippings that, that he'd torn from this place to the other place, none of them having anything to do with sports. But something about that story resonated with him as it could be applicable to what we do. And, you know, come in every day and, and uh, assume that every decision you've made is wrong and challenge yourself to ask why we're doing things the way we're doing and and be open to ideas about doing them differently, not assume that because it's worked before, it's going to work uh, in the future. Great advice. All right. I want to dig into the privately financed Chase Center, which I see is scheduled to open on September 6th. A few three things uh, strike me. First, 40,000 fans on the season ticket waiting list. Is that the right number? It is. Holy and, cow. Uh, yeah, it, it's been a really interesting uh, process to migrate those fans from our uh, Oracle Arena in Oakland to Chase Center in San Francisco. Um, 
we we took two years to do it because every single individual season ticket holder an opportunity to come down uh, to uh, a facility we have right next to Chase Center, see the project, see what the ticket options were, and have an opportunity to pick any seat that was available. And we did it all by seniority. So the longest-standing season ticket holder for the Warriors got to come first and pick any seat. Uh, that he or she wanted, and, and we went right through till about two months ago when we finished that process. And about 70% of uh, our existing season ticket holders decided to make the move with us from Oakland to San Francisco, which we're thrilled about because there was some question about, you know, would this radically change the audience composition for the Warriors since we're moving from 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 one city to a very different city. And the reality is most of the people that are going to be in that building are the same people that were at Oracle Arena uh, and have been for years and years and years. So we're thrilled about that. But, yeah, that I mean, listen, our team uh, made this a perfect storm, right? Uh, to be in the Bay Area at this period of time uh, with the economy doing what it's doing with companies that are charting the future of the world all located right here uh, in the Bay Area to have the team that, that has performed the way it has, to have the leader of your team be Steph Curry, who any franchise would die to have be the face of their franchise publicly. Um, it's a perfect storm, and it had to be because it's a 100% privately financed arena. I'll say it again, 100% privately financed arena. We bought the dirt, the 11 acres that the Chase Center sits on, and uh, received not one tax dollar uh, to to make this project a reality, which I, w I, I don't think would be possible, maybe in New York, but other than that, I don't think would be possible anywhere else in the United States. I think tax dollars are well spent on sports facilities, but it's not what we do in San Francisco. So, uh, it's been a heavy lift. We're, uh, you know, we're a month, a little over a month away uh, from our opening. But I, I hope when you see it, Brian, you're gonna, you're gonna see what seven years of effort uh, has yielded and and a billion and a half dollar facility that I think is second to none. I hope in sports, and and I hope it can take the place on the on the world stage as one of the top uh, performance venues in the country not only for in the world not only for basketball but for uh for all other forms of entertainment well another mutual friend we have is lakers owner Jeannie bus and i sat down with her in april and she said she had a chance to come up and meet with you and tour the facility and she was blown away by it so uh you know i know she has high standards and if she was blown away by what you're doing uh it's got to be really good so i i look forward to Seen it, and I know it's not just about basketball. You're hoping to do 200 events a year there with concerts, family shows, and more. And then you've got a whole surrounding uh, facility there, which is going to have uh, restaurants, and I guess it's called Thrive City. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. With this whole 11 and a half acre site, um, 100,000 square feet of mostly restaurant, retail, 29 different retail locations, a, a very majestic entry plaza. Uh, our television studios are located on that plaza. Uh, we're going to program, you know, what's happening at Thrive City uh, 365 days a year. And uh, whether or not there's something going on uh, at Chase Center or not, uh, people are going to come and enjoy outdoor dining, enjoy amazing public art, uh, enjoy all our other forms of entertainment that will be taking place uh, in the plaza outside the arena. So we're we're 
really hoping this is going to be an amazing gift and transformation for not only San Francisco, but uh, but the whole Bay Area. You're listening to Sports Business Radio with our guest, Rick Welts, the president and COO of the Golden State Warriors. We'll be right back after this. One word you wouldn't typically associate with a dress shirt is comfort. However, the folks over at Mizzen in Maine are changing this. Their shirts are incredibly comfortable. Mizzen in Maine makes dress shirts for men that fixes everything that's ever been wrong with shirts for so long. Their shirts breathe, stretch, and wick away moisture. It's like athletic wear disguised as a dress shirt, making them great for travel. They've taken the hassle out of looking great through wrinkle resistance and the ability to wash your shirts at home. No more last-minute ironing. No more after-work trips to the dry cleaner. It's a shirt that's worked for thousands of customers, including hundreds of professional athletes like J.J. Watt and Phil Mickelson. Head over to MizzenInMaine.com and use promo code SBR to get $10 off your dress shirt. That's MizzenInMaine.com, code SBR. I can tell you one thing. I'll be wearing Mizzen in Maine dress shirts at all future sports business radio road shows and sports PR summit events. I can't wait. Now, back to sports business radio with our guest, Rick Welts. All right. I hear that if you come to a Warriors game and you're like a courtside ticket holder, jelly bellies are part of uh, the the experience. Are you still going to do jelly bellies? I've been to their facility there. In, uh, in Northern California. I think, I, you know, I always like little unique things that you remember from going to a game, and that seems like something unique. That's funny. Yeah, no, I'm, uh, I happen to be a major Jelly Belly fan, so I can assure you that, uh, that our new, uh, club offering, uh, will also include Jelly Bellies. We can't, we can't lose the Jelly Bellies. What's the favorite, uh, Jelly Belly flavor? I, I tend toward cherry. How about you? Yeah, no, I like it too. Uh, yeah. There's a Dr. Pepper one or like a root beer one. I kind of like that one. But it's amazing to me how many different flavors of Jelly Bellies there actually are. It's it's crazy. Yeah, the great divide, though, is usually over uh, buttered popcorn, which I hate. Yeah, I don't like it either. I agree with okay. you. Yeah. All right. Well, people go either way on that one. The other thing I've heard in my my, uh, conversations with people, see, I do my research for these, uh, hot dogs. I heard that you personally taste the hot dogs to figure out the perfect hot dog to be served at the arena. True? Uh, That might be a bit of an exaggeration. I I, uh, (laughs) had a brief stint at the Dodgers between my NBA days and my Phoenix Suns days, and I I did fall in love with Dodger dogs. So I, I think it has to be a staple of arena fare, although... The level of sophistication, especially at Chase Center, that we're going to have with the food and beverage offerings, uh, it may be a little harder to find a hot dog, but you definitely will be able to find one. Yeah, I can only imagine with San Francisco being the foodie city that it is and with you guys controlling every aspect, including the food, how great the food is going to be at that venue. It's going to be awesome. We we brought in a lot of uh, very famous, very local uh Restaurants that are going to, you know, be the ones offering the food at at Chase Center inside the arena, and then again we have uh, again all local brands, uh, and famous restaurants, and chefs that are that are doing the restaurants outside of Chase Center. So uh, I, you're not going to go home hungry, and I think you're going to go home pretty happy with the quality of the food that you experience, and and probably some pretty good basketball or concerts too. I can imagine. I've seen your list so far, and uh, it's it's pretty impressive. I know we only have a few minutes left, but naming rights. You have had two great uh, 
sponsorship deals that you've done in the last uh, couple of years. Chase, obviously, on the arena. And then is it Rakuten? Uh, Rakuten is our uh, uh, jersey badge. Right, and they're on your practice facility. So I love how you activated that and, and what you do with them. But when you're doing deals of that magnitude now, I know it's so much more than just signage and you know hanging your logo somewhere that's visible. Uh, how do you look at naming rights or jersey sponsorships now? Well, I think it's different for for every company to deal with what they're trying to accomplish, and I and I think naming rights has uh, been proven to be a really effective way for for companies to gain whatever it is they're trying to do. So for Rakuten, that's a, a, a one of the largest companies in Japan who has a big international footprint but had no visibility whatsoever in the United States. So by partnering with the Warriors and, and the visibility they got through the Warriors, uh, they launched their whole uh, U.S. business. So that was what they wanted. We just crafted a major deal with Kaiser Permanente. Actually, their their marketing theme is Thrive, which is where Thrive City came from, but it's much more than that. They, their whole thing is community focus, and thanks to this deal, we're going to be able to repurpose our, our current office and practice facility where I'm sitting right now in Oakland into a community asset that is housing uh, not-for-profits that support things that the Warriors Community Foundation supports, and we'll have the biggest basketball teaching program uh, in the country in our former practice facility, which now will be at Chase Center in San Francisco. So for Kaiser, it was all about, you know, how do, how do we ramp up our community engagement and do something really significant for the East Bay, for Oakland. So everybody's goals are different in what they're trying to accomplish and, and where it works is if you find a perfect marriage between a need that the team has and, and fulfilling a need that, uh, that one of those sponsors has. The overall business of the NBA, I, I really wanted to ask you this question. Uh, I'm kind of a broadcast streaming nerd, and obviously everyone knows what the broadcast deal is for the NBA with ESPN and TNT. But, you know, there you are in, in Silicon Valley, and you've got Facebook and Twitter and Google and, you know, all these companies, and I see streaming coming. And personally, I've migrated 100% to streaming. I'm not on cable or satellite or any of that anymore. When streaming rights come up, do you think those are going to match or surpass what the NBA has been able to uh, secure from TV partners? Well, you're only asking the biggest question that the industry as a whole has right now. Hmm. And the answer is nobody knows. Uh, you know, the NBA is in a very unique situation where we still have five years left to go on our uh, ESPN, ABC, and TNT uh, contracts uh, with very substantial uh, increases built in over the next five years. But the reality is, at the same time, uh, you know, our traditional mode of broadcast is, is definitely uh, going by the wayside. And the question is, you know, well, what company is going to take the first leap? And it probably won't be with the NBA. It'll probably happen before the NBA's rights are up. Who's, you know, is it Amazon? Is it, uh, you know, is it Facebook? Who, what company is going to say, uh, I'm willing to pay for those really valuable live audience rights? Because so far, all those companies want to play, but not at the economics that the broadcast television industry and cable television industry has, has given sports to this to this time, everybody, everybody knows that live programming and live sports is the biggest aggregator of audiences there is. It's one of the very few things that people will seek out to watch live, uh, and it may, that 
means it will remain incredibly valuable. But what that model is going to look like and who is going to pioneer uh, the economics of that uh, and whether or not it will match the current economics of our broadcasting cable deals, that's, that's the thing uh, that is being discussed in every commissioner's office today, and, and we're all watching. And, and the, the truth is nobody, nobody knows how it's going to happen and nobody knows the answer, but everybody knows it's coming. Last question for you. What's ahead for the business of the NBA and the Warriors? If you look ahead five years, because I know people in your position, you're worried about today and getting your new arena open, but you also have to forecast two, five, ten years ahead. What are you looking at in the future? Well, local television rights is going through the same, uh, potentially going to go through the same uh, radical change that our, our national television rights are. So we're spending a lot of time understanding uh, and increasing our content uh, production to try to find a formula that's going to allow us to replicate our local television rights as well. For the Warriors themselves, we're actively looking for what businesses we can go into that uh, will uh, support our core business but also grow our enterprise. Uh, You know, we're going to announce in the next month uh, something that we're going to be doing at at Chase Center uh, in San Francisco that we believe we can take to other places around the country and other places in the world. So we want to we generate entertainment content also uh, and become an entertainment content company as well as a sports content company. And, you know, companies grow by acquisition as well. So we're looking at are there other, are there other leagues that we would like to be involved with and feel like we could uh, be successful investing in and presenting additional uh, sports programming in our market as well. Uh, so, you know, it's, there, there isn't a dull day here. I have to admit all hands are on deck to try to open Chase Center in a month. Uh, that's, that's job one. But with that behind us and the sports and entertainment organization put together, we want to see how we can leverage that to uh, do things to enhance the success of the Warriors, but also to, uh, to grow the bigger business. I used to work for the Portland Trailblazers, and I was part of uh, the opening of the Moda Center, then the Rose Garden. And I remember the all hands on deck and, you know, literally people having to put some chairs in and just, you know, it's a grueling time. But uh, you guys have done a great job with it. I'm sure it's going to be wonderful. Basketball Hall of Famer, President and COO of the NBA's Golden State Warriors, Rick Welts. Rick, I've been wanting to do this for a long time. Thanks for taking some time for us. No, it's fun, Brian. Thank you. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. I can't tell you how many times over the years on Sports Business Radio that a PR person is asked to listen in on my interviews with their CEO, GM, coach, or athlete. They also want to call us in our studio so that we don't have the phone number of the high-profile person who is calling us for our interview. Blinder has developed a technology that solves these issues that have existed for years. Use Blinder's unique technology to connect your athlete, coach, or executive's personal phone for any interview without sharing their private information. Remotely control the phone interviews, set start and finish times, monitor online or with the Blinder mobile app, and listen to a recording of the call at any time for complete peace of mind. With Blinder, you're finally in control. The system works globally from any phone line. Scheduling a call takes seconds. Customizable push notifications ensure a connection, and no one needs to download anything to make or receive a call. PR people everywhere should be using this helpful technology. Blinder is now the technology we use 
for the official guest line for Sports Business Radio. Learn how to start your free trial by visiting blinderhq.com backslash SB Radio. Now we're talking. Guests appearing on Sports Business Radio will receive a dress shirt from Mizzen and Maine. It's like athletic wear disguised as a dress shirt, making them great for travel. No more dry cleaning and no wrinkles. It's a shirt that has worked for thousands of customers, including hundreds of professional athletes like J.J. Watt and Phil Mickelson. It's the most comfortable dress shirt I've ever worn. Head on over to MizzenMaine.com and use promo code SBR to get $10 off your dress shirt. That's MizzenAndMaine.com, code SBR. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs and Josh Blank. Thanks to our friends at Boingo Wireless for powering our Sports Business Radio Roadshow. Follow them online at Boingo.com or on Twitter at Boingo. And we want to remind you all the great places you can get the Sports Business Radio podcast. We're on iTunes. We're on Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn. Wherever you get your podcasts, you can find Sports Business Radio. So download us for on-demand listening. Subscribe, rate, and review us as well. We always appreciate the reviews. Follow me on Twitter in between shows at SB Radio. Follow us on Instagram at Sports Business Radio. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio.